Thought Leadership from PwC. I think what is happening is a quantum leap in reporting. We can underestimate. And a quantum leap in reporting requires a quantum leap in our um, skills mm-hmm. and in our knowledge. And so people being uncomfortable, of, of course, and rightly so. Hello. Today, we're continuing our CSRD Spotlight series, focused on giving you the latest that you need to know about the European Union's sustainability reporting rules. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. One common thread that runs through the European sustainability reporting standards is the topic of value chain-related disclosures. The ESRS defined the value chain as, quote, the full range of activities, resources, and relationships related to the undertaking's business model and the external environment in which it operates, end quote, which includes actors, quote, upstream and downstream, end quote, from the reporting entity. To walk us through the topic of value chain disclosures and provide some clarity on common issues facing preparers, we sat down with Luca Bonacorsi, a director in PwC's sustainability practice. Luca provides an overview of the value chain and also shares some important updates on what to expect regarding implementation guidance. With that, here's my conversation with Luca. So Luca, welcome. So nice to have you on the podcast. And I think the topic is one there's a huge amount of interest in, and that's related to the value chain and really how we think about the value chain in the context of CSRD. Uh, So maybe before we get into the conversation, can you share a little bit about your background and even how you got into this space? Um, I've got the most bizarre uh, background because I, I started as an investment banker in the city. Many young Italian economists uh, migrated to the city of London, um, you know, uh, Euros financial uh, capital. And then 10 years later, I, was, I became a trader. I was trading um, financial assets and derivatives. And then I developed an interest for, um, for sustainability. Um, so I did something really weird. I became a journalist and reporter and I spent almost 10 years traveling the world and investigating first environmental crimes, then catastrophes. Then at that point, I thought I developed a certain understanding of sustainability issues. And I moved to Brussels, which is our DC in Europe. And it's where all environmental uh, laws and sustainability laws are made. Uh, This is it belongs to the European Union. Some things belongs to national states in the Union and some happens in Brussels. Sustainability is dealt with in Brussels. And I took the first job I could find, which was with <laughs> with an NGO that was trying to campaign against a, a bad law. And that's where it started. Um, I started working on sustainability laws and policies. The commission appointed me in, the, in one of the expert groups that wrote one of these laws called the taxonomy, which is a list of what is considered to be green in Europe. And then from one expert group to another, um, the CSRD and the European Sustainability Reporting Standards. Um, and then just a couple of months ago, just a couple of months ago, it's implementation time. And who better than PwC to try and implement some of these laws? that I believe have got some some very good things, some less good things, but some very good things. 
Yeah, I was going to say some of our clients may want to chat with you about taxonomy <laughs> now that they know you were involved. <laughs> uh, but maybe that is a subject for a different podcast. It's not so, all my fault. Not all my fault. <laughs> some of it's very good. Uh, actually, you know, there are some parts of it that are helpful, but it's, it's, it's definitely not easy. So maybe since we are going to focus today on value chain in particular, because I think this is one of the biggest challenges for companies is they just think about what are really the boundaries and yep. how far do they need to go? Because I think often it's actually is much further than they perhaps think. It may be helpful to start with a definition. So when we're talking about the value chain, what do we mean? Okay, so I'm um, rubbish at definitions. So you'll allow me to read one of the many, which yes, I think please. will help us. Value chain, the series of interconnected activities that a company performs to create and deliver its products or services. This clearly goes from upstream, your raw material, all the way to the factory where you produce your product. Then there is transport and delivery and actually use it from the, until the end of life. So value chain is a very, very broad concept and it embraces pretty much the entire, let's call it ecosystem in which the, um, the corporation operates. So we still see some companies that are interchanging the terms supply chain and value chain. And obviously that is, does not work particularly in the context of CSRD because you're only looking then at one side. Yeah. Well, supply chain is a, is, is a part. It's the upstream part. Mm -hmm. And now clearly downstream is also very important. We can think of car manufacturers clearly now. So supply, the, their supply chain is very important. Where do this metal come from? Where does this plastic come from? Um, but then we know that 95% of the climate impact of a car happens once the car has left the dealer. So the downstream uh, um, story is more relevant mm -hmm. or, or just as relevant as the upstream story. So it is important to, um, to include it and to, to look at it. Um, once the car has left the dealership, it will run for 15, 20 years, for three, two, 300,000 miles, will emit 95% of the GHG that um, is, are related to this product. So not looking at the downstream would mean not looking at mm -hmm. scope three, we call them emissions, would mean not looking at the whole picture and missing most of the whole picture. So... We look at downstream because that's, that's in, especially in some sectors, uh, it's very important. So, but I think the question that we often get is even in your car example, how do you know if that car is going to, I'll stereotype here, some person, an old lady who stays at home and is only going to drive it, you know, a hundred miles a month or someone who is a salesperson who is driving everywhere for work. And I'm the auto manufacturer or even the dealer. I have no idea which of those people my car is going to. So what do you say in response to a question like that? Well, that, I mean, thank God and not maybe <laughs> we sell so many cars that when the sample is so big, averages work, you know, that when the sample is small, averages and medians are not very meaningful. When you sell the amount of cars that we sell every year, <laughs> uh, just, you know, the, the two largest manufacturers, Toyota and Volkswagen, sell 10 million cars. Now, with 10 million, you cover grandma and her 1,000 miles a year and the sales reps that does 200,000 miles a year. Then there's institutions, of course, the EPA in the US and the European institutions that keep the stats and do the stats. So the EPA has got really accurate, really granular um, average life cycle mileage 
per model of car. So th- there's there's really good and smart people that are doing this job for us to make sure that the averages that we use are meaningful. But then, so now I've had my averages for the car, but now how about end of life? Because yeah. again, I really don't know when the person is going to stop driving it, if it's going to sit in a garage, if it's going to be junked. Like, what do you say to those questions when there really is so much uncertainty? So the what is most material, now we will talk about this, what is most material about the end of the life of a car? Because then, of course, every product, every service is different. It is essentially how much of it is recyclable. Mm-hmm. So how much of that metal we can reuse or recycle, how much of the plastic, um, what happens to the tires, you know, the rubber, we know that they become fuel in, in developing countries. So the the most material from a sustainability point of view aspects of the end of life of a car is, for example, its components. Um, and that we can study and determine and design ex ante before um, it's produced so that we know that we produce a car that will, when it lands in a junkyard, in in a landfill, um, 80, 90% of it, of uh, its components can be recycled, um, which is what is happening. I mean, uh, car manufacturers are very, very, I mean, they've got really strict laws, to be honest, but they are working a lot on it. Um, So that's where then the sort of response is, well, actually you can influence it because of the way the materials you're using and otherwise actually does have quite an impact then when you get to that point in time. It's it's the response that you're saying. By design. So the manufacturer can be made responsible for producing something that is circular in nature Mm -hmm. so that at the end of its life will be recycled. Circularity is possibly the the biggest lesson of our time, you know, apart from emission, there's not just emission. Circularity is about stopping to use so many raw materials. We use too many raw materials and we produce too much waste. So circularity is, I would say, one of the cornerstone of, uh, of sustainability today. And, and you do it from the beginning. So the plastic bottle, and we know the problem with plastic, the, the main problem with the plastic bottle is if you use a polymer that is first comes from virgin plastic and not from recycled plastic. And secondly, it's not recyclable because the marketing department told you that if it was green or blue, it was, you know, it would appeal more to your uh, clients, but then the green and blue plastic sometimes is not recyclable. And that is a problem. Mm -hmm. So making sort of the manufacturer responsible and accountable for circularity is one of the good things that we can do. And these are problems that can be solved, can be addressed with the technology that we have and will reduce impact, which is... So then, you know, we talk about this example of an auto manufacturer who's relatively late in the value chain. But what if I'm the rubber manufacturer or the steel or cement or someone much earlier in the value chain, cotton, where I really, really don't know what is going to happen? Then what do you tell to, you know, how do you talk to those companies? Because clearly there's a, they are having an environmental impact and other, I mean, the it's cross ESNG, but it's very hard for them to understand what is going to happen further in their value chain. Yeah, but I mean, we we can't hold everyone accountable for everything, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, that's not what sort of um, sustainability advocates and environmentalists want. It's not to... Um, to blame on the cement uh, manufacturer every dam that has destroyed every river or every road that has cut through every forest or every parking lot that has uh, you know sealed a piece of grassland that's not what we're here to do clearly clearly um 
So we're asking corporations, I mean, we are asking the legislators, mm-hmm. asking corporations to be responsible. So the cement uh, factory, clearly, it's about mostly about energy consumption. Then in the quarries, there's an issue of how you manage the quarries, of course, because they're very impactful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you dismantle entire hills and, and, and you dig large holes. Um, so clearly, but we've discovered, for example, that responsible um, quarry manager, they can do amazing projects on biodiversity, amazing project. They manage because the, the quarry is enclosed and it's private and it's not accessible. You can actually repopulate, reintroduce species. Quarries can become really, can have a role in biodiversity. And I've, I've worked on with one of the largest producers in the world. They've They've done amazing stuff. So that's what you can ask to the cement manufacturer, you know. Um, minimize, you do your materiality mm-hmm. assessment that you are a world expert of. And How then, did they come back to materiality? <laughs> so the um, what is material? Massive energy consumption, therefore emissions. And, and then the impact on the place where you dig the hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, you address those. The way your cement will be used, is it fair to... I don't, I don't think so, honestly. I don't think so. And I... So you're going to have to make estimates, but then you're going to use industry averages or otherwise, because you obviously it will still be in your scope three reporting and in other parts of your value chain. But to your point, you can't be held responsible for what it's being done with your raw material once you've produced it. Yes, you will account the the indirect emissions to the extent that you can. Also, I'm, I think in cement they're not so meaningful as as they are. It's like building the stable now that we're using today. So, the downstream mm-hmm. part of the business it isn't massively material. I mean, this table is not going to emit a lot, or when it lands in when it goes to a landfill, it's not going to produce you know um, a lot of the the raw material. The upstream is mm-hmm. material is very material. So. It's it's not about making everyone feel guilty and responsible for every problem in the world. No, we there's only so much I can do, and that's what the legislator asks. What you can do that you can manage, the type of car you produce, how much it emits, what kind of raw material you use, how recyclable it is. The legislator asks to disclose, simply to disclose. And sometimes, you know, in Europe, we have very strict regulation on emissions. So, and depending, I guess, uh, what cement you're manufacturing, now even some cement is for carbon sequestration. They're experimenting. So who knows? Maybe you can actually be a positive uh, from that point of view. Um, but- <laughs> the, the listener cannot see my white beard. I've heard about carbon sequestering for a long time. I'm really looking forward to seeing it work. Well, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Hopefully we're going to see some developments there. I think it would benefit all of us. So back to your point that you can't hold everyone responsible for everything, but yeah. you really have to focus in on what you control. I think, again, when we think about value chain, one of the complexities there is the number of levels in the value chain. And we've yeah. been in meetings the past few days, and we spent some time talking about, for example, beef procurement. And ha- like you could have... You know, it's coming from a different country and then it's coming from multiple different types of farms that you were explaining. So maybe if we kind of walk through some of those steps, if I'm the procurer, how am I going to kind of try to dig into some of that information and how far do I really need to go? So, again, as we were saying, you start from assessing what's material, what's material. And we in the taxonomy call them the hotspots. So 
the problematic areas. Now we know, for example, meat. Um, we all love our meat. I mean, some of us. The, there's, I'm thank God, a vegetarian. You're but. vegetarian. <laughs> I, for example, I'm not. I'm, an, I'm a tree hugger and I'm, and I'm not. So I, I, I choose it carefully, but mm-hmm. I, I love my meat and I try you know, to eat the most sustainable one. But So the, for example, with, with cows. With cows, we know that the issue is that they're instrumental. They're being used essentially to destroy the Amazons, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly. Um, and the process is normally that someone will go in there, will, you know, slash and burn, and then they will take... This is a piece of public land where often there's an indigenous mm-hmm. <laughs> village and people where there are, you know, kicked out. So you slash and burn, uh, you put in your cows, the cows are marked, they belong to you, and then suddenly the land gradually belongs to you because your cows marked... Mm-hmm. So this is this is the first disastrous bit, the first disastrous bit. Then the once the land at the beginning is very acid, so you can't you can't, you can't plant soy, which is what um, all our animal most of our animal needs as a feedstock. So you will you will let the animals uh, graze for a season or two, and then you will plow finally plow. And so this is what's destroying the Amazon, for example. So we would call this a hotspot. So I want to know if my meat comes from a piece of land that last year was somebody's home and forest. Okay. So I'm asking you, supermarket or meat packaging industry, to investigate the origin of this meat. But the first level of the disclosure is just ask the question. Mm -hmm. Just ask the question. We see in best practices in the industry, we see that when you ask the question, you don't always get an answer. But then the corporation can give itself a policy. Um, we're not going to name names today, but um, where does this meat come from? Or where does this cocoa come from? Um, I've asked the question to my suppliers. You know, 50% have replied, I can trace this sack of cocoa to the cooperatives of farmer in Cote d'Ivoire that, 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 that produces it. The other half, I don't know where it comes mm-hmm. from. As an investor, as a user, as an environmentalist, I really appreciate that transparency. Then the company can say, I'm going to give myself a policy. I'll keep asking. But in five years' time, those that don't reply, I'll replace them. That is a policy. No one is asking them to do that. Eh? It's Again, it's a free will of the corporation. But legislation, CSRD today, requires transparency. It requires, one, that you ask the question, and two, that you tell me what you do with the answer mm-hmm. or with the non-answer. No? Um, that is all, really. That is all. And clearly, sometimes, as you're saying, how deep do you need to go? And sometimes it's very deep. Sometimes it's very deep. But corporations are doing it already, again, without naming names and going back to cars. I know of a fantastic grape uh, car producer here in Germany that goes to tier seven. Tier seven. They know from which hole on planet Earth the rock comes out becomes a metal that becomes a laminate that becomes their car. That's tier seven. That is clearly an investment. They clearly spend money. And that sounds unreasonable, no? But they don't do it for all their suppliers. They do it only for those where they know there's a very high impact. And we go back to the issue of Mm -hmm. impact. They will go to tier seven with metals and with mining. They're not going to do it with post-its or pens or maybe even, you know, the chairs in their offices. Those... If you have to prioritize where am I going to go deep, you go for the, the, the most severe impact. That's why we do you know, this materiality assessment, we rank severity, and then we investigate there. Mm-hmm. We investigate there. Without the mapping, you, you, you can't. So how deep do you go? It depends. 
Of course, that's just, I know you're new to PwC. I think that's every national office person's favorite answer. That's a joke is that we love to say it depends. But in this case, I, as in many cases, it truly does. But so let me ask you a question then, because we've mentioned this a few times, materiality, and I don't want to make this whole podcast about materiality, but I do think if I'm a company and let's say I'm the controller and I'm working with my sustainability team, I'm new to this, but now I'm responsible for the CSRD reporting and it's overwhelming, right? Because you could go so many different directions. There's so many different risks and it depends on the complexity of my company. So how do you sort of think about, okay, as I first approach a company how do I really focus in on what is most material? What are some of the, the factors that you would use as you're talking to companies? So I, I, I work with clients for clients and, and the other half is here in the technical group with, the, with, the, with you and with our colleagues. And which is great because, which is great because you see, you know, the reality. So where do we start from? I mean, in practical terms, if you haven't done GRI, I mean, I don't know many corporations of the size that have never done a risk assessment. You know, they, they will do... At know, some level, companies done, are. Yeah. But how deep they're going into their value chain, I think, is new for companies that haven't been doing, for example, GRI. Or maybe they're doing it for climate, but for not for other you know, considerations like social or otherwise. So I think, I think the risk part can always be improved. All corporations will understand it. Mm -hmm. How deep do you go? How many risks do you assess if they're short-term risk or medium-term risk? Now we now ISSB demands long-term risks. Mm -hmm. How many companies look at risks in 20-year mm -hmm. times? So the evolution of risk assessment is that. It's an evolution of a concept that is mostly familiar uh, in, in corporations. Now, impact, I will give it to you, is is slightly new in the sense that many haven't done it. It wasn't mandatory. Mm -hmm. It was up to the goodwill of the company. Now it's mandatory. And so it might be very new to some. Um, so where do you start? Again, it's very basic. You start from listing your, your long list of KPIs. You, you map your business. Mm -hmm. I do cars, so I buy metals, I buy plastics, I buy a uh, number of components, I buy electronics, I buy little, little screens, LED screens for my uh, navigator, etc. And you trace them up no, to the supplier of the supplier of the supplier. There's a very wide range of, of studies and research that will tell you where nowadays you have a problem with sustainability. We know that the the use of natural resources mm -hmm. is an issue. We know there is a problem with rubber. We know there's a problem with uh, with wood. We know that there's a problem with a number of raw materials that create the destruction of habitats and, and the depletion of ecosystems. Um, from this long list um, and through stakeholders' engagement, you start mapping the severity of, of these impacts and you will rank them. Uh, you rank them. When you rank them, you finally have a picture of um, of your potential impact or your negative or potentially negative impacts. And then you'll have to make choices because, honestly, no one is asking corporations to address everything mm -hmm. at once. I mean, no one can. But to, to pick, you know, the most severe negative potential impacts and address those. So it is, the truth is that it is more difficult to describe it as a process than actually doing it. Um, in the practice of it it's it's a lot more intuitive than it than it sounds it's a lot more intuitive um and what i've found with some clients is that we're not really telling them things we're 
gathering thoughts that they had individually mm -hmm. in the various departments, the procurement department, the HR department, and the finance department. Um, and we're giving a systemic approach. It becomes a system of thinking. You map your impacts, you map your risks, you rank them, and you approach them with policies, with actions, with targets, with metrics, etc. So I think it, I don't know if it's the consultant's fault. It could be, no, we, we need to invoice. So we make it sound very difficult. Well, no, what I would <laughs> say here is that, again, I'm this hypothetical controller and from a controller's perspective and even some sustainability people too, but we're used to our, I'll use the word books, but books of accounting guidance, books of interpretation and, you know, you have a framework and then there's well thought out guidance on how to apply it. Now, this is all sure. new. And even though it's built on prior standards, it still is new in some ways. Sure. And we don't have those same, all that same guidance. So I know something people are very interested in is this guidance from FRAG. So what can you share in terms of what we can expect from that? So, you know, the FRAG, and the legislation cannot mandate any behavior. Mm -hmm. They cannot, you know, demand, you know, do this, have a policy, have a target. They, they can't. They just can. The standards are about transparency. Um, the guidance gives a number of indications, but for example, it can't even say if you should do stakeholders engagement or not. It will. It will say, unfortunately, explicitly, that we're not asking you that you do stakeholders engagement. However, should you be willing and inclined mm -hmm. to do so, it is considered best practice when you do a materiality assessment. But we can't say, for example, that materiality assessment without stakeholders engagement is a bit, is a bit fluffy. I mean, it's not very strong. You know? So um, I think it will be very helpful for those that are very new to the topic. Um, but it will we will read rather obvious to those that have worked on it uh, already. One thing that I like to say is I think here you need to differentiate financial and non-financials. Mm -hmm. This is a key point, key point. Now the non-financial, the business, people that do cars or grow tomatoes or make blue jeans, they know their business. They know where the problems are. And, you know, the one that had, sort of good intention, they've tried, and they're trying, they're reporting some, but not all, but they know that, you know, that um, dyeing the, mm -hmm. the cotton or where the cotton comes from, it matters where it comes from, it matters how much water they're using and the impact that it's having on the, on the ecosystems and the communities around it. The business knows its business, usually better than we do, mm -hmm. <laughs> certainly. The problem is with finance. Uh, I think finance whether it's investment fund, asset managers, asset owners, insurance companies, or banks, banks. Now, that is the Mount Everest of sustainability mm -hmm. schools because they don't know about business. Not really. I mean, they don't know how you grow tomatoes or do blue jeans or make iPhones or... They don't know the ins and, out and ins and out of that value chain. And yet, the legislator is asking them to assess the sustainability of all their counterparties, all the investees, mm -hmm. all the borrowers. Now, that is a different kind of headache, honestly. And maybe it's because I, I did work in finance, but that is a different kind of headache. Especially, you know, funds will mostly deal in listed um, uh, securities. Listed securities have got a lot of, there's a lot of documentation. But imagine banks. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking banks in Italy, where 99% of their clients will be either small or micro companies, where information, financial information is 
really um, limited, sustainability information is nowhere to be seen. So for the financial sector, which is key in the transition, key, I mean, without, without sustainable finance, we don't transition, honestly, without capital. For the financial system, this is a new kind of headache. And I think it, it will require a lot of work and support in the coming, in the next three years, which is the time span that the legislator uh, allows as a transitionary mm-hmm. uh, period. Um, the period in which instead of having single name or what we call primary data information, you can use proxies and averages and sector averages, which is what everyone's doing now. But the transition to a place where a bank will be able to aggregate emissions, uh, water, pollution, uh, women's rights, gender pay gap, uh, discrimination Mm -hmm. of ethnic minority, you name it, of each and every client of theirs, this transition, it will be just as tough as the um, reduction of energy intensity of a cement or a steel manufacturer, which is which is very challenging mm-hmm. and very difficult for them. So I think we're looking at, um, at a very, very challenging period for, for corporations. But I, I don't want to underestimate in any possible ways the, the challenges that the transition is posing. I don't think that reporting is the main challenge in the transition, to be honest. Um, but that the transition is challenging and difficult and requires... Um, a lot of work. I mean, so Luca, let me ask you a question because I think something else that often comes up when we're talking about sustainability is some people will say there's there's other benefits. Others, like I said, this is just a burden. We've talked about the burden, and so as you think about it, do you see that there are other maybe? tangible or intangible benefits that companies can get if they approach this value chain reporting the right way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not just to, you know, sweeten the 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 uh, the, the medicine. Uh, um, so impact reporting might be burdensome at the beginning, but estimating properly and thoroughly your impacts allows you to estimate your risks better. A sustainable corporation is one that uses less raw material, it's more efficient, it uses less energy, so it emits less, so it's less taxable, and I'm under a hypothetical carbon tax. Um, It is less prone to legal issues because of its attention to the S pillar. Um, It is a less risky company, and a less risk company gets easier finance, gets more access to it and better conditions. In particular now where banks and funds are sort of scrambling and looking everywhere for for green counterparties. Let's not forget that finance is considered green. The greenness and the sustainability of finance is the average sustainability of their portfolio. So they're really striving to find good clients. If you're a good client, if you're a sustainable client, your cost of funding will go down. It goes down already. I mean, we, it's measured today in basis points. They call it green human with bonds, etc. And your insurance company are starting to give you a higher cap or a lower cost of insurance. So there's really tangible, there is really turnover decreases because you start caring about the well-being of your people. Your people feel it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they live less. It means that you can train them, they become better, and you don't have, you know, turnover is an issue. It can be a big issue, especially where you need sort of skilled people. Um, so sustainability makes you a better company and more efficient. And the I think the, the financial uh, gains 
don't you don't have to wait for years you don't have to wait for five or ten years to see them they are quite tangible and immediate um, and I think we don't say this enough so then from your perspective really it, if a company is is approaching CSRD as a reporting exercise or really any of these standards whether it's in California or you know they're dealing with ISSB standards if they're purely viewing this as compliance they actually then will not be getting the benefit it could be creating for them as a organization. Yeah, there is this risk. Clearly, there is this risk. It's a tick boxing exercise. Mm -hmm. I'll do as little as possible. I think that even in that case, I'm seeing it with clients, clients that come and say, I just need to comply with this at the lowest possible cost. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even in those cases, in the making, in the discussion of, and I'm coming from a producer of hamburgers, and therefore we had the conversation yes. on cows, something changes. Even just in the compliance exercise, people start asking themselves questions. They change. And so the, the curve might be you know, flatter and slower, but change does happen. Good reporting does do something to people. All right. And then I think that leads then into really this idea of the importance of corporate governance and how you can actually incorporate this in your, your processes and otherwise. So maybe we should talk briefly about these transition provisions and just what is permitted. And then probably even more importantly, what people should be doing with this time that they were allowed. Yeah. So... Essentially, uh, the transition provisions allow you to use proxies or secondary data instead of primary data. You know? So um, we've made many examples, but going back to the meat, um, because I do not know where this cow comes from, really, <laughs> where it was raised, <laughs> um, I have some sector data studies that say that, you know, on average, 15% of the Brazilian cows, so I'm, I'm clearly making up the number, the, the, the figure, um, comes from land that last year was forest, no? This is a proxy. It's better than nothing. It's better than not asking the question. Um, so what you should do, how you should use this period is that first pop the question. Ask the question, not that question, will you marry me? <laughs> but pop the question, ask the question, where does, to the slaughterhouse, which is your supplier, ask them, I'd like to know where the cows come from. The slaughterhouse will tell you from the fattening farm. Then ask the fattening farm, where does the cow mm -hmm. from? From the grazing land. That guy there, I would like to know where, where did the cow graze when it was growing. Use this period to ask the question, set up the questionnaire, set up your information system. Because in the meantime, we can use proxies and averages and surveys and, you know, what have you. Um, and the only policies that you should have is one to improve the quality of your data, clearly. Um, and then one of principles, you know, I would like not to buy cows that come from deforested indigenous land. Yeah, I mean, that's really the starting point, right? Yeah. Is to go rewind all the way back. What are you doing from a governance perspective? Yeah. What is the company's principles? Are you setting targets? And I mean, do you care where your cows come from in this hypothetical company we're talking about, right? Because if you get all of that set at the beginning of the transition period, that also will then help with what you want to focus on. Absolutely. Yeah, having a goal, a clear goal, um, a sustainability sort of and which becomes a policy clearly and which in theory becomes actions and targets and resources dedicated yes that is absolutely key uh, the governance i mean the governance uh, we usually 
it's known by ESG, but in the European standards, it is GES. Mm-hmm. G comes first. In- well, I heard that actually when they were abbreviating it, they were going to say GES, but then it sounded bad. So back in the day, that's why they said ESG. I don't know if that's true, but there you go. There's a, uh, there's a more embarrassing anecdote, but I don't, yes. I'm not sure. I can. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't an easy negotiation. There were two camps. One wanted fixed KPIs, mandatory for all, mm-hmm. and one didn't want any. Um, and when it became clear that the anti-KPI party uh, was winning, one way of salvaging some principles were to put them in the always mandatory part of the standard, mm-hmm. which is it's called ESRS2. Right. And ESRS2 is on governance. So we've taken all the governance and we put it in a place that was going to uh, be unscathed by the political shenanigans that every every legislator has to go through. So the governance was saved. <laughs> so the sustainability governance, if anything, <laughs> has been saved. That means the IROs, uh, mm-hmm. the impact risk and opportunities, the double materialities, that has all been saved. The rest has changed and morphed like it's normal in any political process, but governance... And I think this is not, we don't say it enough. Governance is number one in the sustainability approach. Um, governance, transparency, and then assurance. Right. I mean, we're here talking about this because there's assurance. Okay, I think this, is, this makes a difference. Well, I think those are both topics that we will hit in another podcast. But let me, one other thing with this transition period, and this comes up in other places as well. Again, I'm this hypothetical controller responsible for this reporting. I'm used to financial reporting where you, you make estimates, but you don't expect to substantially change the way you are making an estimate from period to period, or you don't expect to get a whole new source of information between different years. And I think for a lot of people coming from this financial reporting background, it's very uncomfortable to ha- be dealing with so much uncertainty and to know that in year one, you may be reporting something that in year three or year five, is different because you do have the additional information. And so again, if you think more from a philosophy point of view, what would you tell this very uncomfortable controller? That he or she is right to be uncomfortable, but that we all need to acknowledge that what is required of this category is a massive effort to upskill. The legislator demanding assurance Uh, is effectively asking people who've done economics or accounting or finance to start to understand something about um, emissions, something about nature, something about human rights, something about discrimination, something about biases in Mm -hmm. recruiting. It is, I think what is happening is a quantum leap in reporting. We can underestimate. And a quantum leap in reporting requires a quantum leap in our um, skills, and in our knowledge. And so people being uncomfortable, of of course, and rightly so, and rightly so. I mean, imagine, I mean, we work with auditors all the time. Auditors are. <laughs> auditors. I'm an auditor <laughs> by background, just so you know. <laughs> no, auditors will have to assess omissions in biodiversity assessment. Mm-hmm. 
they are angry because that's not what they were used to do. That's not what they're supposed to do. And yet the legislator is asking them to do so. We were going to have to address it. The legislator doesn't just ask a transition to the steel manufacturer. Mm-hmm. It's asking a transition also from us. The, the legislator expects us, which is probably one of the reasons why a tree hugger goes and works for big four. It, they are expecting a transition from us, more understanding, more skills, better understanding mm-hmm. and skills. So companies are going through the hardship. So are we. So mm-hmm. are we. We do continuous training, continuous upskilling. But I think it's amazing. It means that finally we're getting this. Finally, we're getting how important this is. If everyone, if the human community on planet Earth decides to, to grow and learn things that we've ignored until now, I see as it one of the few reasons for optimism today. So I think your terminology of saying this quantum leap in reporting is the piece of this that if, if this uncomfortable controller and the uncomfortable auditor, and maybe in some cases the uncomfortable regulator, sort of focus in on that this is actually an opportunity to be part of this amazing substantial change, then maybe that gives you some reason to to work through all this uncertainty. But in the meantime, if we just take a step back and say, okay, you're dealing with, in this particular episode, we're talking specifically about value chain, what are some of the best practices that that person can think about and emulate from companies that are doing this well? So thank God there is someone, always someone to emulate. Uh, in every sector, there is a leader, a pioneering company that will report better than others, that will have stronger policies. So, you know, that's good that there's always someone to follow, I think. And in every sector, we have mm-hmm. that, honestly. The the very basic things that the new reporting requirements are asking is that you ask questions and that you map your risks and and, and, and impacts. And that is not rocket science, <laughs> to be honest. As uncomfortable we mm-hmm. might be with certain topics, imagine how how many feathers have been ruffled with the issue of diversity in Europe. You have no idea. You have no idea. Things that are absolutely obvious in the US, asking to which ethnic group you, you feel you belong, are taboo in many European countries. Mm-hmm. They're discussions you cannot have without sort of having really hard confrontations. So let's take our time. <laughs> There's no rush. We're doing the right thing. We have time. The legislator allows us to start setting up a questionnaire, uh, mapping KPIs, starting asking questions, mapping the response rate, um, having an idea in mind of what I want to do. I don't want this cow to come from an indigenous piece of land that has been deforested. That's good enough. For now, it's good enough. Things will follow. And then with nature and with sustainability, very strange things happen. <laughs> in my experience, people fall in love with it. They, it's Life has a really bizarre way of charming you or making you fall in love with it. You, you, the more you read and study about it, for me, coming from a banking mm-hmm. background, it was a journey that it wasn't just a professional journey, it was a personal journey. And I don't know anyone who hasn't been involved in sustainability that hasn't changed somehow and hasn't changed in a way that looking back, they appreciate the change. They think it was after all time well spent. That controller that now is upset, that auditor that now has got a lot of headaches and, you know, is cursing the legislator mm-hmm. and why should I be doing this? I bet you that in a couple of years time, um, we'll have a different view on this. We'll have a slightly different, it's a new normal. 
it's a new normal that we care about what's around us. We just need to give it time. It will be normal very soon. All right. Well, I think it would be hard to top that statement in terms of how we can wrap things up. So with that, I will thank you so much for joining me today, Luca. Such a pleasurable conversation. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.